my name is Beth, and I'm just here to give a little recap. So actually, we just finished last week our series in Hebrews. I think it was about an eight-month series um, called Jesus is Better. Uh, if you missed any, you can always go to our website and either listen or watch. Um, we record all of our sermon series. But today, we're kicking off a new series for Advent um, in the book of Isaiah, and it's called Named. And Neil is actually going to come back out and preach the first sermon uh, on Jesus being a wonderful counselor. So, pretty exciting. So, yeah, as Beth said, we finished the series, Jesus is Better, so we're starting a new series called Jesus is Still Better. Just kidding. This morning, I, I saw one of my daughters look at my pants, and I was like, it's Advent. You can't start Advent without Christmas pants on. Hello? Anyone? Just me? Okay. So, guys, it is the most... Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you. I'm wondering if you guys are even Christians here today. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, that starts right at Halloween. There is something magical about the two-month spread from Halloween to, to Christmas to, to New Year's. It's, it's incredible. And I think it has to do with this weird thing that happens in your neighborhood where you go and you demand candy from people you don't talk to throughout the year. And then suddenly at Thanksgiving, you're, you're eating lots and lots of, uh, of food with people that you've really done a good job avoiding for most of the calendar year, and then you watch football and pass out together, and then suddenly you're opening gifts, and your kids are eating more sugar than you're ever supposed to eat, so we're encouraging diabetes as we celebrate Jesus' birth, and they stay awake till New Year's, that your kids will stay awake from Christmas to New Year's, um, so it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? Um, it's more than that, though. We know that. All those things are, are really true, but there's more of a sense around this time of year of goodwill, isn't there? You, you, you want to be in better relationships with people. Uh, you want to show more kindness. There's more generosity. People seem to actually want to give because we really do know deep down that it's, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And there's this desire for peace. We just have it. it we, there's sort of this reflection that takes place in, in our hearts as, as at the end of the year. We just, we want to sort of do a year review. We all should do that, right? We should look back and see where are we doing well? Where are we not doing so well? How can we make our relationships better? And, and it seems like everybody's just more open to those kinds of things. Today we're starting, as Beth said, this series. It's called Named, He Shall Be Called. As we go back 2,800 years and we look at the prophecies from the prophet Isaiah about the coming Savior, and even more specifically about uh, what Jesus would be called, we don't have to look too far in our own lives to realize that names really matter. Names are important to us, right? We feel a ton of pressure as parents to pick the right names for our kids because they're kind of stuck with them. Uh, we feel all this pressure. We want to balance family history. You know, if you have a whole lot of juniors in your, in your family, then, then you, you sort of feel like, am I going to be the one that breaks the junior? And, and is my you know, great-great-grandfather going to be offended? We, we want to balance it with our own family's personality because every, every family has, is sort of known for something. You want to balance that. And then we want to have some measure of trendiness, right? 
We don't want to give, we don't want to give a name that, that's from too many generations back unless it's an extra generation back and then it's extra trendy again because really there's hardly anything new. And I have to say this, Edge Church, you do a really good job on the trendiness factor of names. You've got this part uh, spot on. Uh, but before you start to think that everyone um, thinks that the names that we pick for our kids are normal, I have to say this. A friend of mine who doesn't attend the church um, not too long ago considered naming his uh, newborn daughter, uh, it, was, it came down to Kathy or Joyce. I was like, wow, that's, that's so plain and it might be uber trendy, Right? I'm like, Kathy or Joyce? All right. Names matter uh, because we're stuck with those names. And, and, and they, te- they tend to mean something to our kids later on. People, Have you noticed that people often fit their names just like dog owners end up looking just like their dogs? <laughs> Think about that for a second. Uh, there, there's a guy uh, that walks in my neighborhood. We've never actually met, but he looks exactly like his Italian greyhound. He's built just like it. I mean, I bet you the guy's fast. They, they both have sleek gray coats. They, they just have this look like they haven't eaten for a while, but boy, they could run. And I'm just like, you look just like your dog. It's incredible. But in Bible times, names mean, meant even more uh, than they do today for us. Uh, because, yes, we, we go through a lot to, to pick names, but, but in Bible times, names were prof- prophetic declarations or proclamations about the character or the essence of the person being named. Imagine the pressure there. So in Isaiah chapter 9, God spoke through Isaiah about the very nature, the very essence of the coming Savior to all of humanity, Jesus Christ. So we're going to dive into that today, and we're going to talk about the first name, Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, meaning God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire." Then it gets to a familiar point for all of us, for most of us. It says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. At the very start of the chapter, we begin with the word, uh, nevertheless. And and to me, um, it sort of sounds encouraging. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. It sounds a little bit encouraging, but with kind of a foreboding-sounding plot twist. 
because it's sort of like, um, it's encouraging because anytime I've experienced darkness or despair in my life, when I find out that that's about to lift, that's encouraging. But it also feels heavy to me because of the nevertheless part, because it sort of, it sort of beckons the question, so what does that mean? Nevertheless, what? Meaning what? Fill in the blank. Even though blank the gloom and despair will be lifted. So let's take a moment and actually fill in that blank. The Israelites uh, were in a downward spiral of their own doing. Does that sound like us today? We all have a tendency, I said this to someone recently, that I have an unbelievable, undeniable ability to make choices to hurt my own life. Any of you, can you guys relate to that? It's just unbelievable to me at my age that I still can make decisions or say things carelessly or whatever it is, just live and just by, by nature of being in a family, I can do something that hurts someone either, either carelessly or even inadvertently. I'm shocked at how often I can do that, but we are no different than the Israelites were. And, and, and while the Israelites were in this downward spiral, of poor decisions, of walking away from God, knowing him, and then, and then turning right back around and walking the other way. God was using enemies of his people to humble them. That spiral was detailed in the first eight chapters of, of Isaiah. It, it says, um, basically in chapter two, they followed God and then they chased after things. Kind of sounds like us, Right? We can turn Christmas about the, the presence of Jesus Christ coming into this world, his presence, but we make it more about gifts that we purchase for other people or, or even more so about things that we want for ourselves. That's chapter two. Um, they listen to God, but then they, they turn to alcohol more than they turn to God. Chapter five, verse 11. We can relate to that. They honored God, but then they chased after women and lust more than they hustled after God. Chapter 3, verse 16. They pursued the Lord's wisdom, and then they went to fortune tellers and psychics. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 6. So they were humbled by God, and they were experiencing dark and distressing times. Uh, Quick side note, how many of you guys know that the Lord uh, loves you too much to allow you to go down paths like that without disciplining you. Okay, that's a grace of God. He loves you too much to allow you to go down these paths without giving you course corrections. And, and I'm convinced more than ever, it's, it's not that he's angry at you. It's that he loves you so much that he won't let you stay in that downward spiral that you've created. But they can be dark and depressing times. So nevertheless, the gloom and despair will end. Why? Well, it certainly wasn't because the Israelites picked themselves up out of the dirt. It certainly wasn't because they suddenly had this dawning and realized who they needed to follow. No, it's actually for the exact opposite reason. Because they, just like us, had no way to, to see the light without the light coming to them. They couldn't do it on their own, so God sent his one and only son to them and to us. So the very first name of this Savior is a character trait. It's an essence. It's wonderful counselor. I want to talk just for a minute um, about counselors because it's a subject near and dear to my heart because that's my primary gifting in ministry is to help people 
um, with, with counseling. It's my educational background. It's just how I'm geared in ministry. So, so to, get to, to get to talk about this today, I'm, I'm kind of geeking out a little bit, I'll be honest. Why do we go to counselors? Why do we go to counselors? We go to counselors because we have an issue that we need some wisdom for. We have an issue. We have a struggle. And, and one thing that's awesome about 2018 and a sea of other really depressing things, right? A whole lot of depressing things about 2018, just as there were a lot of depressing things about 2008 and, and, and 1998 and every eight in between and every other year. Everybody struggles, Right? But one great thing about being in 2018 is that the stigma about mental illness and struggle is slowly being peeled back. So it's not so hard to say to someone that I'm going to a counselor, whereas 30 years ago, if you did that, you were worried you'd get fired because it signified that you must be unstable. In other words, you must not have it all together, so you might make some choices in the workplace that make other people uncomfortable. But the reality is that all of us are in need of counsel. And we have a wonderful counselor. So what do counselors do? In my experience in counseling people for a whole bunch of years now, it's, it's not exactly what people want them to do at first. My experience is that when people tend to come for counseling, what they first want is for me to hear the one issue that they present to me, for me to believe that's the sole issue that they're dealing with, and then they want me to tell them exactly what to do and write out a schedule of when to do it so that their problem then will be gone. But here's the problem with that. If I tell you what to do, or if any counselor tells you what to do, then I'm in charge of your experience from that point on, which means that you will not take responsibility for the outcome in your life. So if I tell you what to do and it falls flat, you're going to come back to me and say, I want my money back because you gave me bad advice, when the reality is you haven't been in control of your life and your decisions in the first place. And you need wisdom in how to make your decisions. The last thing a codependent person needs is to, be, to get a codependent counselor. So counselors can't take responsibility for your decisions. What a good counselor does is listens a lot. Listens a lot and then asks questions that go beyond that initial issue. Here's something else I've learned. The very first thing that someone shares in a counseling session is not the major issue. It's the presenting issue. No one comes forward and says the whole thing. They say the thing that they're most comfortable with, and, they, and ultimately they want to see if you can get to what the heart of it is. We present symptoms when really what we have are, 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 are huge issues that need to be uprooted and dealt with. A good chiropractor friend of mine said it like this. He said, Neil, do you think that the reason that so many people have bad headaches is that there's a shortage of Tylenol in the United States? And I was just like, oh, I got to write that down. I've shared that so many times with people. He's like, no, there's, <laughs> that's clearly not the issue. Tylenol will address the symptoms, but likely there's something bigger happening behind the scenes that needs to be dealt with. Good counselors do the same thing. They help people get to the cause, not the symptoms. If you just deal with symptoms, you still have the root. If you don't dig out the root, you're going to get the same fruit. Does that make sense? Yeah. We've got to get to the heart of the issue, and that's what a counselor 
is supposed to do. So Isaiah calls Jesus uh, the wonderful counselor. To us, maybe the word wonderful has lost some meaning. Because we hear wonderful or we say wonderful. We live in this culture that's so sensational. Everything is wonderful. Everything's awful. Everything is amazing. Everything's terrible. And and can we just thank social media for a second for that? I think social media has kind of done that. Thank you, social media, for making everything big so nothing has meaning. It's just so sensationalized. But the meaning of the word wonderful in the original Hebrew, the word is Paula, and it means miraculous or special or extraordinary. Miraculous, by definition, is not commonplace. It means it's not something that happens every day. There's a reason miracles don't happen every day. That would be called the ordinary. They're not ordinary. They're different. They're extraordinary. They're outside of the normal way of things. And the word wonderful, it means miraculous. So we have to think, what is this? Oh my gosh, this, this Jesus. This Jesus is miraculous. He gives perfect wisdom when we need it the most. So why is it that we turn to everything else just like they did 2,800 years ago? And then just like they did at the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago, we do the same thing. We turn to materialism and drinks and sex and all the things that people always have turned to because we're humans. That is just our tendency. It's our bent. If Adam and Eve couldn't figure it out, don't be so surprised when you have tendencies to make bad decisions too. We don't have to, though, if we follow Jesus. We're not required to because even though we still do sin, and if anybody ever says they don't sin, or if anybody has a hard time thinking of the last time they've sinned, ask their spouse first. And if anybody, the scripture says that if anybody says that they are without sin, they are a lie, they're lying and there's no truth in them, we still sin, but it's not how you are any longer described. It's no longer your nature. It's no longer your essence if you have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Savior is the easy part. The Lord is the challenging part. Everyone wants to avoid um, punishment but no one wants to submit. It's not in us to want to do that. But we are new when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. It means you don't have to live in your old ways. You don't have to use your old coping mechanisms. You don't have to go to your old sources of information. But here's where it's going to be a challenge. This whole learning to live in a new way, it means you have to turn to new information. And we live in a time where there's absolutely no shortage of information. There is no shortage of counsel out there, right? We have 24-7 news, and we have for 20 years. Social media bursts on the scene around 2007, and my gosh, there's more information on social media than you could ever imagine. There's more info generated on Google and social media each day than all of the rest of history combined. Each day. I came across some kind of creepy statistics. Um, According to Forbes magazine, um, 90% of all data available today has been created in the last two years. 1.5 billion people are on Facebook every day. 
16 million texts are sent each minute. 95 million pics and videos are shared on Instagram daily. I don't think it's coincidental that according to um, this, uh, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, that 20% of people on social media can't go three hours without checking. And those people are deemed to have social media anxiety disorder. We're getting new diagnoses based on our media consumption and our media creation. That same journal pointed out that, that uh, suicide attempts among school-aged children have doubled between the years of 2008 and 2015. Guess what? Right in time for social media to come on the scene. What I want to do in our remaining time today is compare God's counsel to the world's wisdom. Because there is no shortage of information. The question is, where are you going to go for yours? Here's our first takeaway from this passage. Jesus is the personification of wisdom. Jesus is the personification of wisdom. We don't just know this because of his title, Wonderful Counselor. Um, We also have this incredible passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is addressing culture. It could be our same culture today he's addressing. It sounds so similar. He was speaking to these educated philosophers of the age. Well, we have a lot of philosophers. The educational part is up for debate for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Listen to this and see if this doesn't sound like our world today. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The Greeks were known for their philosophers. They had Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, but the Apostle Paul goes straight at the source of their their pride, and he says, you have all these smart people. You guys just are known for all of your wisdom. You write books and poetry, and you have all these great ideas. But even on God's worst days, as if he had them, Even on God's worst days, uh, the weakness of God is stronger than your strongest strength and the foolishness of God is wiser than your wisest philosophers. What he's saying is, we are having a full-on trash-talking of the wise people. This is like Michael Jordan in his heyday in basketball. He was just trash-talking. I just saw a video recently of Jordan at the free-throw line. I don't know how, some of you guys might have seen this video, some of you might not have. But he was trash-talking Dikembe Mutombo from the free-throw line. And the first shot, he, he, he got the first free-throw. And he looks at Mutombo and he goes, this one's for you. He closes his eyes, 
during his free throw shot. Of course he made it. I mean, like, this is what the Apostle Paul's doing right now. He's like, he's like, hey, why don't you guys open your eyes really wide and, and hit me with your best shot because God with his eyes closed is smarter than all of you. And they're like, wait a second. You're kind of hitting us at the core at our identity. You're, you're telling us that we're not nearly as smart as, as what we think. And Paul's like, exactly. There's someone who gave you all that wisdom. You just don't know him yet. Hmm. Our smartest people, our quippiest posts on social media are foolishness to God. Sometimes we think we've outsmarted God, don't we? There are a lot of people that think that. It's one of the original lies in the garden that Adam and Eve fell for, that that God was holding out on them and there was a way to be enlightened apart from God. And the truth is what they were enlightened to was the reality of evil. And it's consumed them and consumed us and just like Adam and Eve we need a right relationship with God we're surrounded by self-proclaimed experts on every single topic that exists just look up type any word into Google and watch how fast it predicts what you're going to ask about it's unbelievable it's no different than 2800 years ago it's just a different form It's no different than 2,000 years ago when Jesus came and he wrote this to the church at Corinth. But the Bible tells us it's Jesus where we're going to find the wisdom and the counsel that will truly fuel our lives. You can fuel your body with good things or bad things. You'll get a lot farther if if you make healthy choices, if you make whole choices. Yeah, you can fuel your body with sugar for a while till your pancreas dies. It's true. Choose what you're going to fuel your body with. Choose what you're going to fuel your life with. Jesus is the personification of wisdom. Here's our second idea today. Our amount of wisdom coincides with our practice of the truth. Our amount of wisdom coincides with our practice of the truth. Guys, we've all known someone who scored off the charts on a standardized test but can't make their own box of Kraft mac and cheese. Right? Thanks, Matt. I appreciate that. But it's true. If that person is with you today, just smile at them and say, God still loves you. Knowing something and applying it are two totally different things, right? I've used this example in plenty of sermons, but I like it because it, I think it typifies the American struggle. It's just like my chiropractor friend. It's the same train of thought. We don't have an obesity issue in the U.S. because of a lack of teaching um, that's available on the subject of weight loss. We have an obesity issue because we don't practice the knowledge that we do have. And why do we do that in the U.S.? Why, particularly in this area, for me, it's 100%. When I go off the rails with my eating, it always has to do with Giordano's. <laughs> it does. You know how some cars, like when you work for a company, they have a limiter, and it's like, this vehicle only goes 65. I feel like you're almost inviting people to attack the driver and take all of his money. It has nothing to do with what I was sharing. But here's the thing. For me, I don't have that limiter when it comes to Giordano's. I do for some other kinds of pizza, and don't hate me, but Lou's is not nearly as good as Giordano's. My, woof, preach. It's just not. I'm sorry. It's, it's good. 
It's just not as good. I'll still take it over to Giorno. Amen? Amen. Now here's the thing. Knowing something and applying it, two separate things. Jesus tells us that whatever it is we think that we, that we think that we need or maybe we legitimately need in this life, he says don't focus on that thing. And in his wisdom, what he says, be focused on becoming a practitioner of the kingdom of God on earth. In other words, practice the values that God has and his desires for this world, not chasing after the things that you need. Doesn't make absolutely any bit of sense to us. We're like, wait a second. I thought that if there was a problem, we're supposed to focus on the, on the problem and look for creative solutions to that problem, and then we will have solved it. No, that's the American dream. What Jesus says is, no, if you want me to, to show you the power that I have in your life, focus on being someone who practices the values of the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Be someone who desires to bring the values and the life of God to this earth, and then watch what I will do. In other words, I will make foolish the wisdom of the wise. He makes people who chase after the corner office look foolish because he will provide for your needs when they're chasing after things and having heart attacks. That's what he does. It's just in his, it's in his job description. Matthew 6.33 describes it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. In other words, all those things you think you need or you do need, all of those things that, that you chase after at work and you try to make more money and you worry all the time about your finances, how am I going to pay this bill or that bill? How will I have enough time for all the things that are important? What he says is, I know you're caught up in culture and I know it's hard to, to break free from it, but if you will just step back out of the culture and use the wisdom that I give you, I will do things in you and through you that will confound the world. They will be surprised. And they will wonder how that happened without all that stress because you are not in control of your life, even if you think you are. The wisdom of God is not like our wisdom. Our wisdom says, look at the problem and solve it. God says, I know what your problems are, and if you seek me, I'm going to take care of those issues. Here's our final point today. Acquiring wisdom is not an individual event. Acquiring wisdom is not an individual event. Guys, no matter how much we love Jesus, no matter how much we seek to live in a countercultural way and bringing the kingdom to earth, we can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. Now, God could do it all, but at least in our Western mindset, I believe it would feed our sense that we did it ourselves. We wouldn't have to give him credit. But the kingdom of heaven isn't individualistic at all. As a matter of fact, it's incredibly interdependent. Not codependent, those are completely different things. Interdependence is a healthy reliance on others for a common goal. Codependency is unhealthy and icky and ooky and you don't want it. Get good counsel for it but we're designed to need each other. The Bible tells us how to get wisdom. James 1, 5 through 8, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. In other words, start, start with God. Ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. 
If you need it, he wants you to have it. Ask him for it. He's not looking to find fault in, in, in what you've done to this point. He's so proud when you ask him for his wisdom. I'm so proud when my kids ask me how to do something that they're not sure of how to do and I've been waiting for them to, to just ask because I can show them a better way. I'm never mad at them for it. I'm just like, I'm so proud that they're willing to come and ask. How much more so is God proud of us when we say, Lord, show us. Show us how to do this. We need your wisdom. It says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Quite an indictment. What it's saying is just believe. When you ask God for wisdom, his desire is so strong to give you wisdom. What he's saying is there's no room for doubt in this one. It's, this isn't at all suggesting that God's just mad at anyone who doubts something, but specifically for this, he's saying, I just want you to believe. If you have trouble believing for anything else, believe that I really, really want to give you wisdom. He's not going to fault fine. He's not going to poke holes at you. He's not going to make you beg for it. He says, just ask and believe. He doesn't hold out on giving wisdom. But then you also have to be open to how he might do it. And sometimes he does it when you're reading scripture by yourself. Sometimes he does it when um, you're, you're praying. Sometimes he does it through the wise advice of a friend who knows your situation. And sometimes he makes you step outside of all those things and get really uncomfortable and go to a professional counselor and it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing weak about you for needing help to get through a hard time in your life. As a matter of fact, I commend you if you've done it. It means God has given you great wisdom and humility. And those things should always go hand in hand. Proverbs 15, 22, it says, Plans fail for lack of counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed want to say this that doesn't mean you post on Facebook some vague statement that begs people to ask you how you are or if you're going to make it through the night don't do those things save that for someone that you trust who has godly wisdom not for someone that's like we got you fam I want to invite the band forward and I want to end with a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Do you know the wonderful counselor? I want to make sure you understand my question. I'm not asking you if you know of him or even if you're living by a moral code that looks like his teachings. I don't know if you know, but there are a lot of people who try to live by the, the teachings of Jesus because they recognize he's a good teacher, but they deny his divinity. Now, I'm not asking you if, how, exactly how you're living. I'm asking you if you've made the conscious decision to give your life to the one who has the power of life and death. And have you communicated that with him? You don't just hop on the path without speaking to Jesus about it. Here's the second question. What's your primary source of information of counsel? Is it Fox? Is it CNN? MSNBC? 
Reuters, NPR, BBC, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat? Is it a good friend, a parent? Or is it the Word of God? The question's heavy for me because I tend to go many more times throughout the day to social media than I do to Scripture. Many more times. Why? Same reason you do. I've got this weird thought that I'm going to miss out on something. It's the fear of missing out. The truth is, I've never really missed out on anything when I've made the choice to not go on social media. The truth is, I'm more relaxed. I'm a better husband. I'm actually present with my children. Haven't ever missed out on one thing. My guess is, you guys wouldn't allow me to miss out on one thing if something really big happened that I needed to know about. But I struggle with it too. If you don't know Jesus, you can change that today. Psalm 94, I love this. My daughter Hannah wrote this in in lipstick on a mirror in our house. God will not abandon anyone who seeks him. Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what that means? It means God wants to know you. He desires to have a relationship with you. He is not angry with you, no matter what anybody's told you. And if you're like me and and you tend to get counsel more often from all of those sources of media instead of from the word of God, I want to challenge you to make a decision just for this week. Not saying for the rest of your life because that sounds overwhelming and most of you won't start. But just for this week, I want to ask you to make a practice of reading scripture before, before you allow any other kind of counsel to enter your mind. And I want you to see how it changes the way you live, the way you speak, the way you're kind to to other people. My guess is is that when you choose to prioritize the truth, when you make it your number one, when you go to scripture first, here's what's gonna happen. Later on, when you go to all those other sources of media, you're not going to be as influenced by those things because it is not studying counterfeits that makes you know the truth. You'll spot counterfeits when you know the truth. So what's going to happen when you read scripture and then you turn on one of the news channels or you see one of your friends giving false information about God? What you're going to do is say, my primary counsel is here so that I can know what's true and what's not true in the world and in my experience. I'm thankful for the wonderful counselor. Let's pray together and then we're going to close with worship. Father, I thank you that you have the words of life. I thank you that you had a plan that confuses the world, but it's life to us. I pray, Father, that um, during this week in particular, that we would be able to focus on prioritizing truth. Speak to us in all the ways that you will through the word, through prayer, through trusted friends, and and through even professional counseling, God. Through it all, Lord, change us. Help us to be light to all the people in our world. 
Father, we love you and we thank you for truth. We pray you'd help us to to live by it and do it in a way that's grace-filled and invitational. God, we thank you so much for your name, wonderful counselor. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. 